What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Cinderella, and I am back. <laughs> and not only am I back, I'm back with another case. Okay, y'all, okay, so before we jump into this case this week, I am so sorry. <laughs> I have no excuses, no reasons why I have been gone so long. In all honesty, I only plan to take a one-week break. But, hey, it is what it is. I'm sorry, I've been gone. I don't even, I, like I said, I can't even say why I've been gone. But I did have my birthday. I had me a good old time, y'all. Happy birthday to me. Hi. Um, I was going to go try out I was going to try to go visual for y'all when I came back. Because after the third week of vacation, I was like, damn, I ain't been working. Bitch, you lazy. <laughs> so, I was like, I'm going to go visual. That's when I'm going to come back big and bad visual. I tried to record a visual. I did not fucking like it, y'all. Because the thing is, I don't think y'all realize, I kind of talk a little fast. So, sometimes when I get too into the story, I might move a little bit faster than I would if I sat there and, like, just took my time with it. And it's easier for me to audit and, I mean, it's easier for me to edit and jump back into the audio and, like, add things later. But with Video is not that simple, and unless y'all gonna help me hire a team, <laughs> I can't do it. it. It's not in the cards for right now. Look into my crystal ball. It's not in my fucking crystal ball, okay? I want to go video because I'm really pretty, and I want y'all to put a face to this voice, you feel me? Because I know y'all are like, that is my homegirl, but I don't know what she look like. I know, but <laughs> great things come to those who wait. <laughs> y'all waited for this episode and look it's gonna be a great one i promise y'all if you have anything that you want to talk to me about go ahead cuss me out of my inbox i already got a couple of people that was sitting there mad at me like damn when we get in the episode damn you said you was gonna be consistent damn you said on mondays i know baby i'm the problem i'm the drama okay that's why i'm single <laughs> i ask for consistency i say i want to be consistent and then i go ghost i'm an aries baby passions run high and then i die <laughs> But I love my true crime family. I love my podcast. So I'm going to make sure I'm going to do what I need to do to do this for y'all. I ain't planning to talk for five minutes just about myself. So if it's not edited for real, just know I'm really trying my best to get closer and closer to that video. So I might have stuttered a couple times while I was just talking. And that's just going to further prove my point why I should not go video. <laughs> but okay, okay, y'all. Okay, okay. Enough about me, enough about my flaws, okay? Let's let's focus on the great things about the Cloudy Conclusions team and family and everything about Cinderella. We love a good story. And not only do we love a good story, we love a good murder. So here we are. I told y'all about this crime um when I was doing when I did my debut. So it's kind of fitting. This crime is one of the crimes I wanted to cover during my debut month of October because it is a Halloween crime. But I didn't because it's a history crime too. Like I'm a nerd for history and I love a good like it's not really a period piece but it's just the time frame some of the characters in it and it just had me really engaged and i think this is why also my video episode did not work out because i'm way too excited about this fucking story okay so this story it involves teenage love 
owe money and my favorite thing in the world, murder. <laughs> and over many decades, this case has caused quite the controversy, mainly because the murder is quote unquote unsolved. But before we get too much into that, you know what we got to do. It's time to identify a thing. Y'all, I just don't think y'all know how much I miss this. Like, I really be doing my thing. Anyways, back to the story. Um, And tonight's theme is addiction. Addiction is characterized as a complex, a mental disorder that causes you to seek or engage in harmful behaviors. You know, you can be addicted to drugs. You can be addicted to alcohol. Um, Sometimes it's not even the drugs you take. It's the high you get. You can be addicted to power. Addiction is addiction itself is the drug and sometimes can be a learned behavior of your environment. Social settings, family history, a lack of parental involvement. All of this leads to addiction and its path of turbulence. Addiction is the disease that makes you too selfish to see the havoc you created or care about the people whose lives you shattered. So, I'm going to go ahead and give y'all a warning that this is going to be like my longest episode ever because it's a lot of little sidebars that I got to give y'all, like, just give y'all some extra context because, like I say, it's a lot of characters that I want to talk about because it's as history people in it and I just had to, okay? So, here we go. We are in Greenwich, Connecticut in a small neighborhood of Bellhaven. It's early afternoon, about noon, Halloween day in 1975. 15-year-old Sheila was walking hurriedly through her backyard towards one of her best friend's houses. It had been said that her best friend Martha Moxley never made it home the night before, and everybody was getting together to search for her. Trying to keep negative thoughts at bay, her head was down as she quickly walked into the backyard of the Moxley house. As she passed one of the larger trees on the edge of the yard, something caught her eye. When she walked closer to see what it was, she froze in her tracks. Sheila discovered Martha face down under the tree, her pants and underwear pulled down to her ankles with damage to her head. When she realized what she could be looking at, she panicked and ran for help. The police were already there because as far as the timeline went, 10 o'clock, it was widely said that she was missing. 11 o'clock, the police were there coordinating the search. Around noon, the search was over. The police went back to the tree and confirmed it was indeed Martha. She had been badly beaten, apparently by a golf club that was found broken in pieces near the body, and one of the jagged pieces was used to stab Martha viciously in her neck and head. It was no longer a missing persons case. The Greenwich police were now hitting one of the city's few homicide investigation cases in history. Chief of Police Stephen N. Baron Jr. said that in his 30 years with the Greenwich Police Department, there had only been one or two homicides and nothing of this nature at all. The police determined Martha had been killed between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. So they had to trace back her day before to get her last few hours to see when she could have met foul play. One thing that was evident in the initial look was that whomever killed Martha knew her and the act was done in a fit of rage. 
Martha Elizabeth Moxley was born to David and Dorothy Moxley in San Francisco, California, on August 16, 1960. In 1974, David received a job as the head of an accounting firm in Manhattan. So, he moved his wife, son, and Martha to the East Coast. Now, they chose Greenwich, Connecticut because it was still suburbia enough, but also close enough to the city where it was less than an hour commute from the fast-paced New York City. And Greenwich, as a city itself, was a nice town with little to no crime. So, David and Dorothy bought a home in the quite affluent neighborhood of Bellhaven. Huge houses, expansive yards, household employees rich. It was gated with a guardhouse where you gotta check in and either be a resident or know somebody who is before you're allowed entry. Exclusive. A little more than a year of being there, Martha has soon become one of the more popular girls. She was a pretty young girl with long blonde hair with gentle brown eyes. She was voted best personality in middle school, making friends easily. She was an honor student, an above-average athlete, and she was just generally well-liked among her peers. She also had a great relationship with her parents and brother John. But Martha was still a teenager, and she liked to test her boundaries a little bit. She, was on no, she wasn't on no Lindsay Lohan, but she broke curfew a couple times, and she was hanging with different crowds, you know, still finding her place. So Martha done broke curfew at the beginning of October, and her parents was not fucking with it. It was like, hey, you need to calm the fuck down. Chill out, all right? So she was on a little punishment restriction type shit. But, you know, towards the end of the month, they started fucking with her again. They was like, yo, you deserve to hang out with your friends again. You've been doing what needs to be done. So they said her grounding went in on October 30th. Now, October 30th is better known as Mischief among the teenagers now apparently this is some up top type shit because down south we ain't got no shit like this and apparently this is only shit privileged to be in white neighborhoods because when they say mischief you know it's where teenagers is causing ruckus in the neighborhood with teeping egging graffiti maybe a small fire here and there you know white shit but if it was done in black neighborhoods it'd be called vandalism destruction of property trespassing criminal behaviors you feel me so it would make us land in jail and cause us to be victims of the system and you know just go through the trials of racism but hey this is not what this story is about today So Martha lit, you feel me? She done told her friends, like, we outside, bitch. And they made plans for her first day out. Gucci. <laughs> Yo, I know y'all miss me. Like, how y'all can't listen? All right. Anyways, she come home, do a couple of chores, you feel me? She chilled and she asked her mom, like, hey, <laughs> you remember when you had said? And Dorothy was like, girl, bye, but you better be home by 10. Martha said, cool, hug her mama and leave. That would be the last time Dorothy sees her daughter alive. Around 9.30 p.m., Dorothy hears some noise outside. And, you know, she like, okay, my kids coming home early. Okay, y'all listening. Y'all trying to be on track and shit. You feel me? She look outside. She hear the noises. She definitely hear dogs barking, but she don't see nobody. But it's whatever. It still ain't perfume, so she ain't tripping too much. It's about 11 o'clock. Dorothy knocked out in the parlor, you know, like the front window area that's close to the front door so she could still hear if her kids come to the house. She wake up, she jerks away, and she see her John, her son John walking in. And she like, damn, how I wake up with you? It's 11 o'clock. But I ain't wake up with Martha, who's supposed to be home at 10. So she goes upstairs to her room, and Martha ain't there. So, you know, she trying not to trip. She like, yo, I know she ain't breaking curfew. I know she probably just fell asleep at one of her friend's house. So she ain't panicked. 
but she stayed up because she waiting. And she getting a nervous feeling in her body. So she called her man like, yo, our daughter ain't home. I don't know where the fuck she at because he on a business trip. So he like, yo, try to go see where her friends at. Call her friends. You know, look for her real quick to get back soon. So she called her friends like, hey, Martha over there. Where Martha at? When the last time you seen Martha? Everybody like, yo, Martha should have been home because we went home around 8 o'clock, 8.30. So Martha should have went home after that. Um, But she was over at the Skakel house with us, so asked them. So her brother John getting a car to ride around and see, like, maybe she out and about still with the Skakel boys and shit. Because, you know, the Skakel boys, they get active. They be out in the streets. <laughs> um, But he don't find us. So she called her husband again, like, hey, you need to get home. So he's trying to find the first flight back. It's about early morning and shit. She done hit all the friends. She decided to walk over to the Skakel house because the Skakels live right across the street from her. Michael is the the Skakel boy who's in the same grade as Martha. He's 15 as well. She makes note that, like, even though it is kind of early, whatever, she smelled alcohol on him. And, like, he incoherent, not really focusing. But he like, yo, I ain't seen Martha. I don't know what you talking about. Get the fuck out of my face. Feel me? So she leave, whatever. She called police. Like, hey, my kid missing. Now, usually in 15-year-olds, they usually attribute this type of absence to a runaway type situation. But, mind you, we in Connecticut. Not many things you can get into. It's a rich little neighborhood. They come out. That's when they start coordinating the search, getting shit together. You feel me? But like I said, by noon, the search was over. One of her friends, Sheila, had just found Martha under a tree in the Moxie's backyard. Because her pants were pulled down, they speculated she had been sexually assaulted. However, once the medical examiner looked at the body and the autopsy was completed, that was found to be false. Her pants were pulled down to humiliate her. Mm-hmm. Then as they looked at the obvious murder weapon, the golf club, they looked at the pieces to see the manner of how it broke. Because, like, ain't no golf club, like, steel or aluminum or something like that. Like, something real strong that you really just can't break off rip. It ain't something that you can just, like, break over your knee type shit. Um, yeah, so it's looking at it like, how the fuck did this shit break? Them bitches is mad sturdy, and it takes extreme force to break one. This club was a six iron, and it was broken into, like, three or four pieces. They really didn't know the final number, because it was like the head of the golf club was found at the end of the Moxie driveway. Um, And then one piece was found next to Martha in the grass next to her, and then another shorter piece that was more ragged was... The, like the main murder weapon was found in Martha. Now the one piece that was missing was the grip. You know the part that you hold when you swing that bitch, or if you want to hit a bitch real quick, that part you gonna hold it like a wapa. Yeah, that piece was missing. But it was deduced that maybe the killer took it with them because it probably had fingerprints on it. You feel me? Now mind you, I just told you the head of the fucking club was found at the end of the Moxie driveway, but Martha's body was found at the edge of her backyard. Okay, so when they go back to the head of the club, they go, like, looking for, like, traces and see how, like, the path or whatever, and they see some disturbed grass. So, apparently, somebody realized that it's not as easy as it seemed in a movie where you could just grab a body by its ankle and drag that bitch. No, that bitch is heavy. It takes extreme effort, and you, it was like a zigzag pattern in the grass, you feel me? Like, they was just, like, getting tired and pulling, pulling, pulling. But... 
that's even more upsetting because that girl was this close to getting home and she was attacked in her driveway. Mm. What was weird is that they took away the piece of the golf club that had the fingerprints on it, but they didn't take away the piece that had the engraved name of Skakel on it. Skakel. If you listening, yes, I've already said the name Skakel. Skakel was the people that live across the street. Skakel was the last person she was seen with. Skakel was the little drunk ass boy that answered the phone that was that answered the door and was rude to the mama. Yeah, Skakel. That name gonna come up quite a bit. So the Skakel family lived directly across the street from the Moxleys. Russian Skakel was the father. He was a widowed father to seven children, six boys and one girl. He had lost his wife years prior to cancer. He had only one sister, Ethel, who was married to a Kennedy and had became estranged later on after the marriage. So coming from a long line of money and power, the daddy was like the daddy of Russian was in oil and you know, he joined the family business type shit, you feel me? Um most of the evidence of their dysfunction was hidden as a family. But Russia neglected his relationships with his children and seen to pass them off to members of his household staff. Two of the Skakel boys um, were the ones that Martha was seen with last was Tommy, the 17-year-old Skakel son, and then Michael, her classmate, the 15-year-old Skakel son. They had hung out with Martha and her friends pretty often. And so, like I said, after questioning Martha's other homegirls, they was like, yeah, we was all at the Skakel house. So, apparently, Mischief Night went about, like, they had did their thing in the streets, did a couple TP and type things, whatever. And then they went back to the Skakel house to kick it. Now, I'm a big fan of that 70s show. So, if you know... Eric and his friends love to hang in the driveway, um, on the on the Grand Dam, just listening to music and shit. So that's what they apparently did in the seventies, because that's what Martha and her friends had went and did in the Skakel house. But they was actually sitting inside of the car, and Martha was sitting in between Tommy and Michael. She was getting a little close to Tommy though. Apparently, they had shared a little kissy kiss in the car, and everybody had sainted it. But it had soon got dark. People dispersed, and Michael headed over to a cousin's house to go watch a movie. Now, apparently, this movie is some funny ass movie in white culture. I ain't never heard this motherfucker about the name like six times. It still has not resonated with my spirit. So, I'm not even going to tell you I remember the name of this movie. So, we'll keep going. Um, they asked Tommy if he wanted to join, but he opted to spend a little bit more time with Martha. Now, initially, Tommy had told the police that he had kicked it with her and that she had went home about 9 30. Now, remember, 9 30 is the time that her mama had heard like the dogs barking and shit like that, some noise outside. So that's even more devastating to think that you don't hurt the time that caused a neighborhood disturbance among neighborhood dogs when your daughter got attacked. Because you probably screamed and some dogs barked because it was a loud sound. The six iron smacks somebody upside the head. Ain't no light noise. You're going to hear a crack with that one. Um, so that's upsetting. But, you know, that's me connecting dots before the police connect dots. But... I'm going to let y'all know now, I might be a heavy criticizing force of the police force, but they deserve every bit of fucking criticism they deserve, they got in this fucking story, okay? Because they did not do their fucking job. Um, But after about 9.30, Tommy went into the house to finish a paper on Abe Lincoln, and then he watched a movie with his tutor, Kenneth Littleton. Now, when the police asked his teacher about this paper, it wasn't no fucking paper. It was no assignment due like that. So they don't know where the fuck they even came from because Tommy clearly needed a fucking tutor. Like I said, he watched a movie with his fucking tutor. And this tutor was no reliable alibi because it was his first fucking day of work there. He just got there 
and he's 23 years old. He a young whippersnapper just out of college, you feel me? Then got him this little job. He basically a glorified babysitter because wasn't tutoring shit. So, and when they had talked to Michael, Michael had told the police he had watched a movie at his cousin's house until about 10, 10, 30. He had it home and went straight to bed. He didn't even speak to his own brother. So, trying to learn about, like, trying to learn more about Martha or whatnot, they go to her room, they search and shit, going through shit, whatever, they find her diary. Now, it's this diary that comes up a lot later on in, um, just some investigative reports and just talking about this case because it points some fingers that were already being pointed at the Skakel family, but it pointed more fingers to them because it was in the diary that the Skakel brothers were competing for Martha's affection. Now, I feel that big fire energy coming from Martha. August 16th, that's a Leo, baby, and that's something we about to brag about. I'm an Aries, so fire energy recognizes fire energy, baby. We got niggas fighting over us. <laughs> I wish I did, but hey, Martha did. She had two brothers at that fighting over her, okay, and she had it in her diary. She had wrote it down. But see, apparently, Michael had a bad temper and a drinking problem. Mm. Now, this is the second time we've been talking about this shit, okay? A 15-year-old with a, a known drinking problem ain't no green flag. That's a red flag as fuck. That's crimson. Okay, and Tommy, he didn't understand what consent was. He had made some unwanted advances toward Martha, towards Martha, according to her diary. He had, like, at a dance, put his arm around her shoulder, and she was like, nigga, you making the spot hot. You scaring the niggas. Like, why is you doing that? We ain't even on that level yet. <laughs> we sneaky linking. Okay, and then he had put her hand, he had put his hand on her knee one time, and back in the 70s, that's a little forbidden, because that knee too close to that thigh, and that thigh too close to that kitty cat. So, that's um, a red flag, you touching on me, and I ain't really consent. But it's weird to me that in her diary, it was stated multiple times how the contact was unwanted, but it was a lot of friends that was with them mischief night, and before, that said that, that she was openly flirting with Tommy. But, that didn't matter because the Skakel boys were unreachable. Well, they were unreachable after this point. They gave that statement and that was it. The, the tutor called. The dad was like, hey, this is my second day here. It's a whole murder going on across the street. They are talking to the boys. They're trying to come back. Russian sent an attorney. Then he got there and shut that shit down. He wouldn't let them access medical records. He wouldn't let them access education records. He wouldn't let them talk to the teachers about them. None of that. He was like, fuck out of here, boy. Okay. Told you. He got long money. Okay. And a lot of police officers were not going to press the issue because they moonlighted at the Skakel residence as security and shit. So they was not about to stop their money trying to investigate this murder. By December of 1975, the police had interviewed over 250 people as potential suspects, witnesses, or character witnesses. The police were honing in on the Skakel boys, but like I said, Russian had shut that shit down. So the case goes cold. Brick. Freezing snowing outside okay in 1978 though now this is sidebar it's gonna be important later but right now you like girl that was brief for what in 1978 michael drunk ass 17 years old now got pulled over then led the police on a high-speed chase his alcohol um 
that limit, whatever. I ain't never got no DUI. So whatever that shit is, when they be like testing your blood alcohol limit, whatever, that's what it's called, that VA shit, whatever, was three times the legal limit. But bitch, he a minor, so that's like six times what it actually ever should be. But instead of getting charges, he was sent to a reform school. Because, you know, that money and white privilege shit affords you those type of resources, okay? So, he got sent to a glorified rehab that allowed him to finish his high school education and still prepare him for college, whatever. And basically gave him better ways to cope and hide his fucking addiction because it did not help. Mm -hmm. So, let's go all the way. To the golden year of 1991. And that's the golden year. That's the year I was born. You feel me? That's the best year. So, 1991. Dominique Day is at an unrelated trial. During the trial, it was said that the accused, like the person who's being charged in this case, mind you, is unrelated. The accused, they were trying to like talk about his character, was present the night Martha was murdered. Now, Dominique in the crowd, you feel me, he a writer, and he like, damn, whatever happened to that case? 1991. Case happened in 1975. There still hasn't been no resolution to this case. So, Dominique, he got some... He got a little bit of old money, too, you feel me? He went to the same Catholic boys' school as Rushton Skakel. They were years apart. They didn't graduate the same year, but, you know, they went to the same school. And then he had went to the wedding of Ethel Skakel when she married Robert F. Kennedy because he was dating, like, a girl that went to school with Ethel or whatever. So, you feel me? Like, he got a couple of ties or whatever. And so, he was really trying to figure out, like, what the fuck had happened with that case. So, he reached out to Dorothy Moxley. And Dorothy, at first, was hesitant because, you know, it's been a long fucking time. A lot of people don't open this wound and added salt to it, you feel me? Because they said they wanted to help or they didn't do anything. And just knowing that the police gave up on her daughter's case of this wrongful death and people think they know who did it, like, it's not fair, you feel me? So she was a little hesitant when he reached out to her. But he made her comfortable, you know, he related to her on the same level. Like, look, my daughter was killed on Mischief Night, too couple years after yours you feel me like i will i know how it feels to have lost a child and so he made a promise to not exploit the story of martha moxley so he does his investigation he gets the facts of the case whatever and he writes a fiction book based on the case of the book in 1993 um that's when he published the book and from this book, he was clearly convinced Tommy Skakel committed the murder. Now, it wasn't until a woman contacted him at an event in Denver and showed him the confidential autopsy photos of Martha. And she wanted Dunn to know Tommy didn't do it. But he didn't get a further explanation and didn't remember the con like didn't remember her name to contact her later. But I fuck with that, you feel me? I fuck with niggas who get the information but don't remember the name or the source. I don't put my name in it when you decide to publish that shit. And it worked out in his in her favor because well actually it didn't. Because look, the police you know, they they heard about the book. People talking about the book, whatever. The media talking about the book. And they talking about how the police failed to properly investigate this. So, tell me why the Greenwich Police Department decided to pull up on Dominic and, like, gave him some paraphernalia. Like, hey, 
can you stop talking shit about us? You feel me? Like, can you like lay up off of us? You, you, you're making the block hot. Here's a coffee mug. Here's a t-shirt. Like, we fuck with you. Stop fucking with us. <laughs> you feel me? And he was like, yeah, I got you. I got you. But like, I seen the photos though. I seen the autopsy photos. And it was like, the autopsy photos. Now, mind you, I told you it was confidential. So they was like, she took the photos. So they already knew Shotty had dipped the fuck out because she probably seen something she ain't like because it was some shisty ass shit. Because why is these photos even confidential and this case is not closed? <laughs> something in the milk ain't fucking clean. And I'm trying to figure the fuck it out because it ain't insure. It ain't chocolate. And it ain't strawberry. Uh. So, like, how the police paying attention to what the news saying and shit and how he feel about their lack of work, but did not listen to comprehend and get some maybe tips of the actual case and do some fucking work. And y'all wonder why y'all got the criticism y'all got. In 1996, Aaron Spelling, you know, Tori Spelling's daddy, you know, 90210, you, you feel me? Hollywood type shit. He made a TV miniseries about the book, allowing media outlets and news to speculate on the actual case that inspired the book. Several months after that, the Sutton Report was released. So let's get into the Sutton Report, y'all. So <laughs> in 1991, Russian Skakel funded and hired his own investigators in order to see what the police may know in order to better protect his sons. Mm-hmm. You heard me correctly. So instead of being cooperative with the police, because remember in 1975, on the third day of their investigation, he shut them completely out. Instead of being cooperative with them, in 1991, when he got wind of Dominique Dunn doing this book and getting more information and doing their own research, he decided, yo, I need to find out what the fuck they may know so I can better defend my sons when it comes back on them because I know they did something with that shit. That's, I mean, he ain't say that, but that's what I'm feeling like. I feel like he know them niggas did some shit because he knew he was a neglectful parent and he was not present to know what kind of behaviors they were developing. I mean, imagine sending your 17-year-old off to a glorified rehab. So this nigga was like, yo, I need to figure out what the fuck going on. So he put like a half a mil into a private investigating firm to basically give them full out access that he did not give the police. They had access to the medical records. They had access to the old teachers. They had access to the sons. They were able to get interviews with everybody in the house all the people who were there, extra people who said they were around. They literally talked to every single person that Rushton did not allow the police to interview in 1975. Now, when he built this team, he is not a dumb man. He definitely made every single person sign a non-disclosure agreement. So, they were forbidden to talk about even comments on anything about this case, what they think, how they feel to anybody outside of people working on this case. But how did it get leaked? Well, <laughs> after a couple of years of this investigation, and they became to a solid finding of they felt like the scapegoat boys were guilty too, they need to put all the information in the digestible form for a Russian scapegoat at the time. And they hired an additional person who would 
read the information, make it concise, and put it in a report form for him. And apparently when Skakel got that report, he trashed that shit. He did not like what he read, and he was upset. Burn it, get rid of it, I'm done with it, right? He thought that was the end of it. But it was not because that person they hired, years later, they forgot to give him an NDA. And he was upset, child. So he reached out to Dominique Dunn and gave him a copy of the Sutton Report. In this Sutton Report, we find out that Tommy and Michael both changed their alibis once interviewed privately. Tommy said he stayed outside with Martha a little longer, having a little makeout session once everybody left. Kissing turned into heavy petting. And, you know, for the people who don't know, 70s lingo petting is when you know, use your hands to rub and excite certain parts of the body. Um, and Tommy even admitted to unbuttoning Martha's pants and pulling them down a little. Hmm. Were her pants unbuttoned and pulled down when she was found? Hmm. All right. Michael Skakel also admitted to lying about going straight to bed. He said, easy explanation. He was actually outside the window of Martha's bedroom in a tree masturbating. <laughs> Nothing weird about that. He just ain't want to be a suspect because, you know, behavior like that might make people suspicious. Because you're a fucking serial killer. Because who does shit like that? That is the beginning of a sociopath. You're a peeping Tom. You're a public masturbator. You're a person who basically commit bestiality because you're beating your meat in trees next to squirrels, not worrying about what kind of nuts they catch it. <laughs> like, why the fuck are you climbing in bitches' trees trying to catch a nut? Witnesses also said that Michael admitted to and even hinted at committing the murder at reform school. I mean, it was later recanted because the person who said it was a heroin addict then and now. Makes him kind of an unreliable witness. But, like, again, why the fuck would Michael even say some shit like that? Like, who even plays like that? What kind of brownie points did you earn for killing a girl? So, Dunn didn't really know what to do with the report. He was kind enough to give a copy to the Greenwich police chief. But Sal pussy-ass Frank never got back to him. Which is really weird, because this nigga gave you a whole fucking stack of pancakes covered in butter syrup with a dollar of fucking whipped cream, and you acting real motherfucking ungrateful, bitch. You acting real fucking suspicious, bitch. You acting like you part of the fucking cover-up too, bitch. I'm really upset with the police working this motherfucking story, but so is everybody else. Never got back to him. But like I said, niggas was working for the Skakel family and they didn't want to mess up their own bread. Well, Dunn was later contacted by the literary agent for Mark Furman. Now, another sidebar. If you don't know who Mike Furman is, Mark Furman is the motherfucker who caused the OJ trial. Now, he is a very decorated detective. Pretty decent at his job. Not a bad officer but has very low moral standing but it's to be expected most police officers are like the baby cousin of the kkk um and that's my opinion i'm gonna stand on it 
So, during the OJ trial, he was asked by OJ's defense attorney, do he say racial slurs? And he said, no, never. Not me. Ugh. What? I love niggas. Oh, no. Not niggas. I love black people. Right? Right. So, he said no. He perjured because... The defense attorney had recordings of this man saying racial slurs, being native, and even using the N-word with the hard er on the end. Not a uh, a er. Okay. So, he became an unreliable witness. It discredited him. And he was actually one of the key prosecution witnesses. So, I feel like, along with a lot of other people who felt like OJ was guilty, Mark Furman is the reason that case ended the way it did. Well, he did not use his disgrace in a negative way. He did not become no drunk-ass nigga. He became a writer. He started deep diving into unsolved cases and looking at things from his standpoint in other jurisdictions and shit like that after he retired. He had just come off the high of having a really good, successful book, and he was interested in writing about the Martha Moxie case. And since Dominic Dunn was the one that kind of like brought it back to the forefront and had a relationship with Dorothy Moxley, they reached out to him in order to receive some information. And Dominic was like, bet this is like God aligning because I just received this fire ass report. Here's a copy. You can have that shit. He handed that shit over fast as day. Now, Furman wrote a book called Murder in Greenwich, which was later adapted into a made-for-TV movie. And listen, I love me a good Lifetime-type movie. And this movie good as fucking. They got my nigga from Long Order SVU. I think his name like Christopher Pelosi, Poloni, or whatever. He in there. And he is Mark Furman in the movie. Um, So I'm a little biased about saying the movie good because, like I said, everybody don't like a Lifetime movie. But I do. So, Dunn's book in 1993 was super successful, but Furman's book was explosive. All eyes were back on this case like, what the fuck happened? Why did the police force fail so fucking miserably in this case? How was this case unsolved when it's clearly one of the motherfucking skateboard boys, right? So, of course, that sparked the fire under the prosecutors in the Greenwich office. They appointed a one-judge grind jury to listen to the case and witness testimony. This proceeding took over a year, but it resulted in an arrest warrant for Michael Skakel. Over 20 years later, Michael was arrested and charged with first-degree murder of Martha Moxley. But there was a fucking catch. He was being charged as a fucking minor because he was only 15 years old when he committed the crime. But, like, what the hell is that? This man is 40, and y'all are suggesting to let him to go to juvie? What? Luckily, the juvenile court judge had some fucking sense and was like, no, and sent his ass back to Supreme, the, you know, the, the regular niggas, and they charged him as an adult. So instead of facing the maximum of four years, he is now facing life. The trial did not last as long as the grand jury proceedings, but the results still came out favorable. Martha Moxley lost her life October 30th, 1975. Michael Skakel was convicted and sentenced to 20 years to life on June 7th, 2002. Finally. But, unfortunately, that's not where the story ends. 
Womp, womp, womp. Time for the appeals. And it's always during the appeal process we find out some behind-the-scenes information, new theories, unreleased evidence, and shit like that. Even though, in this case, I feel like there should not be not one piece of unreleased evidence, bitch. This shit has been unsolved. It's frostbitten at this point. This shit is the top layer of the wedding cake that you froze and you eat on your 10-year anniversary type shit. This case has been cold for decades, bro. Okay? But Michael's first two appeals weren't even heard by the state or federal Supreme Court. They just didn't want to entertain him. But it was the third appeal that caught traction. Because, you know, it's a tried and true type of way where you blame the lawyer. My lawyer failed to defend me to the best possibility. He did not do what he needed to do to cast reasonable doubt. Now, you cannot just say the lawyer didn't do their job because you don't like the verdict. The lawyer really has to be proven that they failed to provide evidence, testimony, alibis in any sense that could have casted a reasonable doubt to the jury. So that's how Michael Skakel got his third appeal. Um you know how I mentioned Michael's auntie was married to a Kennedy? Well she wasn't married to just any Kennedy. She was married to Robert F. Kennedy, the Attorney General, and the brother to President John F. Kennedy. The Kennedy family is informally known as American royalty. People love them from the father to the sons to the wives child. It's a common joke in the black community that the older black women will have a picture of JFK and Jesus hanging next to each other like it's nothing. But a brief rundown, Kennedys came from Ireland, one of the five sons were the lowly manufacturer job, had four kids, and his oldest Joe got rich off of banking. Joe is the patriarch of the Kennedy family as we know them. He married Rose Fitzgerald, and she was the daughter to the mayor of Boston. Um, and they had nine children. Majority of them successful, President JFK, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, and U.S. Ambassador to Ireland, Jane Kennedy, and the founder of the Special Olympics, Eunice Kennedy. There was at least one Kennedy family member in federal elective office from 1947 when P.J. Kennedy's grandson, John F. Kennedy, became a member of Congress from Massachusetts until 2011 when Patrick J. Kennedy II, John's nephew, retired as a member of Congress from Rhode Island. So Ethel Kennedy was married to Robert F. Kennedy in 1950. Now remember, Ethel came from her own money too. So you would think this would be another powerful merger by marriage. And you would be the fuck wrong, bitch. <laughs> the Kennedys were Democrat and they ain't fuck with the Skakels who were Republicans. So even though this connection was highlighted, it was believed irrelevant since the two families were estranged by 1975. Plus, JFK had been assassinated 12 years earlier and Robert was assassinated seven years later. And family is still family, and somehow Michael was quite close to his cousins. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wanted to help clear his cousin's name, and he was very publicly defending his cousin. Like, I know my kinfo, man. He don't never do no shit like that. You feel me? Like, we used to hang out. He don't do no shit like that. You feel me? Ten years later, in 2013, Robert Jr. did a 48-hour interview and then wrote a book about how his cousin was framed and wrongfully accused. A criminal um named Tony Bryant had apparently gave Robert some tip. Like he had he had said I would give like this testimony, did like a little interview, whatever. It's given paid off, but he had get an interview saying that Tony Bryant, who was a cousin to late Kobe Bryant, 
Anyways, Tony Bryant and two of his friends had hitched a ride over to Bellhaven because they wanted to spend mischief night over there and cause a little bit of ruckus and shit. And they had planned to get a girl caveman style. You feel me? They wanted to hit her over here, drag her to the woods, and do some shit to her. And I'm confused on what do some shit mean because to me, caveman style is giving me like, you know, rape and assault vibes. You feel me? You want to assault her, hit her, drag her to the woods, and do some shit? You want to knock her out and then do some shit? That's giving rape and assault. And I just don't see my... I don't see three young niggas admitting to doing no shit like that. That's why I'm saying it's giving paid off vibes. But Tony said that shit. You know, that's what they was thinking when they went over there. But Tony ain't stayed for all the extra willy-nilly. You feel me? He said he left, and he didn't know what the other two ended up doing. But he was saying, like, you know... They could have been the ones that murdered Martha because just because it was a golf club that had the Skakel name on it don't mean they were the ones who did it because apparently the Skakels loved the golf and they were like, the yards were huge. So they had like little areas like along the edges of the yard where different clubs were. So people knew that and they were basically casting a little bit of original doubt saying like, Anybody could have accessed a golf club just because it had the Skakel name on it doesn't mean a Skakel used it. They left them outside. Like, anybody could have grabbed them just by walking by their yard. So, that's what Tony was telling Robert Jr. That's what Robert Jr. put in the book, you feel me? But niggas followed up on that shit, and it just did not pan out the way they thought it was. But this was not the first time this theory was talked about because Tony actually had the same conversation with the Sutton investigators. The same story, very consistent, is giving pay off the poor brown people to be a scapegoat type of deal. So many skipped past it. And it was addressed in court during trial to be a baseless story because the judge and prosecutor was like, three black boys ain't going unnoticed in Bellhaven. That's what I'm trying to say, you feel me? How this story come about, but nobody in the neighborhood forgot to mention they saw three niggas in this rich-ass neighborhood. That's gated, by the way, that you have to check in, by the way. Exactly. So, like I said, the judge and the prosecutor was like, nah, that ain't it. Well, Kennedy still wrote a whole book on it and was doing interviews thoroughly convinced. So even though the judge knew about this theory, the Supreme Court decided to reevaluate the defense's level of effectiveness during trial. And y'all, they ain't like what they had found out. So apparently Skakel's snake-ass lawyer, because of how he treated the Moxley family, not because his client was found guilty, nuances people. I, I just... I just don't like the way he talked about the Moxley family, whatever. He did not do everything to show reasonable doubt. He forgot to bring an important alibi witness to the stand. That's a violation of his right to the fair trial, and the court agreed. Michael was released on bail, and his conviction was overturned six months later, y'all. Let me go ahead and put this in here that he did serve over 10 years in prison. What I mean by six months later is during his appeals process, he was in prison. So that's the 10 years. And then on that third appeal, when it went through, they released him on bail. While he was out on bail, six months later, they overturned his conviction. Like, damn, just let me get a win, we get a loss. And I can't really fault 
Michael for is really just this fucking system. It's the police officers. It's the lawyers. Everybody sucks, bro. They really did not want to get justice for this girl. But it was like these niggas started playing Uno because they reversed the shit out of the appeal. And then in 2016, it was reinstated. But then in 2018, it was overturned again. So, like, it was like a lot of back and forth going on with this case. But on October 30th, 2020, 45 years later, to the date, the prosecution announced that they would not retry charges against Michael. The prosecution still believed he was guilty, but they couldn't favorably hold a new trial because a lot of the key witnesses had passed by this point. I mean, by the time they arrested that nigga, he was 40 years old and then now add a whole nother 10, 15 years to his 55. Like, a lot of people he knew were addicted to drugs and lived unfavorable lifestyles. It just didn't work out. And then the tutor, I think he even committed suicide. I forgot to get like more information on that backstory. So it was just a lot going on. Um, unfortunately, like I said, this case is still unsolved technically. Like, even though many people are convinced the judges, the prosecution, the people are convinced that Michael Skakel is the one who did this. He got off free and will remain that way since they formally announced this less than two years ago. It ain't too many of a cloudy conclusion I can give you on this. Like, it's pretty cut and dry to me. It has to be one of the brothers. The golf club, the obsession, the competition between the two. Each of them admitted to being sexually attracted to her, but both couldn't get her. That's why Michael seems more plausible since he was the rejected one. I mean, like, think about it. What if he came back earlier than what he said? Saw Tommy and her kissing and petting each other pants down type shit, right? And he got mad and attacked them while they were doing the deed because he because Tommy probably walked Martha to the edge of her driveway type shit. And so he attacked them. And even though he hit Martha, he wasn't able to get Tommy. But then Tommy is still his brother and he saw what he did to Martha and was like, yo, look what the fuck you did. Now I gotta help you cover this shit up because why did he lie the first time? Why would Tommy need to lie the first time if they were consensually making out and shit like that? You feel me? So, like, he had to be part of the cover-up in some form. So, he didn't kill her, but he helped his brother cover it up. You feel me? Um, also, like, he nutted in a tree. That's, that's weird, bro. Like, that's obsessive. That's a lack of impulse control. Like, you can't even hold where you're going to masturbate, where you got to do that shit in a tree. And then he bragged about being a Kennedy relative so much. And it's weird. He was like, sir, you have your own name. Technically, you're not related to the Kennedys. Like, yes, your aunt is a Kennedy, but you're related by marriage. So you're not a Kennedy in any sense, in any sense. But why did the tutor get fired? Oh, did I say that? Did I tell y'all that the tutor got fired? Yeah. Even though he helped provide a solid alibi for Tommy, 
he got fired and you know a lot of people started thinking maybe it was him maybe he had something to do with it because it was his second day in town he was new around and maybe he saw martha when the boys were flirting with her and was like yeah that's a that's a bad piece of mama jamma that i want you feel me and she was like nigga you old you creepy and he beat her ass with a club like so speculation came on him type shit and, I mean, at the root of it all, it just comes down to the fact that Skako was just not a good father. He tried to protect them too late. Like, if you just would have instilled in them the proper morals, you probably wouldn't have had to spend over half a mil on a, an investigative report and probably 200000 or more on good-ass lawyers to get him through this process. Could have saved you a little bit of money just actually being present. What a thought. The Kennedy connection is why the case gets the attention it does. And honestly, it's a catch-22. Did the connection help or harm them? Some people feel like the only reason they were honed in as suspects from the beginning was because of their relation to the Kennedys. But then others feel like the reason they got away with it was because of those very relations. I don't think Ethel was too aware of all the happenings with her brother and nephews. Again, I will say they were estranged. But like, I'm inclined to believe that she tried to help simmer the police interest because i know if i called any of my aunties right now they coming you hear me they don't play about me and go make sure whatever my mama can't do they will and seeing as the Skakel brothers didn't have a mother at that moment maybe the use of the kennedy name helped more than we will ever really concretely know y'all need to be focused on y'all kids like money don't solve the problems for children sometimes like you see how these celebrity kids be turning out and acting and shit they have money and access and resources but because of the lack of parental involvement it just builds bad behaviors and bad coping mechanisms and they develop vices and these vices turn into addiction and addiction turns into obsession and obsession turns into murder <laughs> not all the time but hey it's kind of like if you lie you steal if you steal you kill okay y'all so i again want to apologize for my long absence i am going to be the most consistent girl you've ever met from here on forward um please make sure you interact with me talk to me there's always a poll at the bottom of the episode notes again if you want to help me hire an editor so i can get more content out in a timely fashion you can always go to my show notes in any episode is always there a link to donate to me because i don't have a patreon y'all are not subscribed to me you get to listen to me freely as possible but my time ain't free i do this for pure passion but i would like to get a little pretty coin from this too i think i'm gonna start selling ad spaces but you know i'm still building up my clientele so i want to be able to have something to offer y'all in those ad spaces this is a long episode it's about an hour long i was gonna break it up in two parts but i felt like that would be rude i just gave it to y'all in one big whop so here y'all go i hope y'all enjoyed it Talk to y'all later. Thank you guys for listening and make sure you follow me on IG, Anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at Cloudy Conclusions.